0: Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles now to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, we will be focusing on verses 4 through 7 this morning of Romans chapter 15. And I have a bit of a confession to make as we begin to look at these verses this morning. When I was first beginning to study and learn theology as a young man, and first really beginning to think deeply about the Bible. I'd been raised in church, I'd read the Bible, I'd even studied the Bible a little bit, but as I really began to, to dig in and try to to learn uh, more deeply, I, there were um, certain truths and teachings and doctrines that I, I had not encountered before, and, and as I learned them, I became very passionate about them and very uh, interested in them. And, and I remember reading Romans 15, uh, particularly verses 5 and 6, where Paul says, uh, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I remember reading those verses thinking, how can we do that? How can Christians glorify God with one voice and be in harmony with one another unless we agree on all these doctrines, on all these things that I've become passionate about and interested in and was learning for the first time, I was thinking everybody needs to affirm these things in order for us to be really and truly unified. And I wasn't thinking about doctrines that had had normally and, and traditionally and historically unified the church, like the doctrine of the Trinity or, or the doctrine of uh, the deity of Christ, right, that he's fully God as well as fully man. I, I wasn't thinking about the fact that we are saved by grace through faith. I wasn't thinking about those essential, fundamental doctrines that have united all Christians in all places and all times. I was thinking about doctrines that Christians had historically disagreed over, in part because they were so difficult, and and people interpreted uh, those passages of Scripture that dealt with those doctrines differently. And and so I, I... I was thinking, well, we've all got to get on the same page about these things for us to be unified. But more important than which doctrines I had in mind, which doctrines I was focusing on at the time, the more important thing was I was completely wrong about how I was thinking about Christian unity. And I was completely wrong about how I was interpreting Romans chapter 15. First of all, I, at the time, apparently, was totally unaware that both biblically and historically, some doctrines have been recognized as more important than others. I was trying to put almost all the doctrines that I knew on the same level, of all of equal importance, and everybody's got to affirm all of them for us to be really unified. But Biblically, that's not how it works. The Bible does not tell us that every doctrine is of equal importance. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul singles out certain doctrines and says that they are of first importance. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-5, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that on the third day he rose from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. So the death of Christ for our sin, his burial, his resurrection on the third day, and the fact that all of that was in accord with the Old Testament scriptures, Paul says that is of first importance. He never says, for example, that the doctrine of election is of first importance. And we can list a a dozen, maybe a hundred doctrines that are not of first importance. Not every doctrine in the Bible is of equal importance. Though they are all important because they're in God's Word, they're not all of equal importance. So, biblically, I had missed the fact that there are some doctrines that are of first importance that are essential for all Christians to believe, And there are others that are of lesser importance. And I had missed that historically, Christians had been united around those doctrines of first importance, and they had articulated those in ways that all Christians could affirm together in things like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, where we say together, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. And I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, who ascended, or excuse me, who rose from the dead on the third day, who ascended to, uh, to heaven and is seated at God's right hand, from whence He will come to judge the living and the dead. All of those are, and and it goes on, I believe in the Holy Spirit, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, I believe in the little C Catholic Church, the universal church, I I believe in the resurrection of the body. All of those are things that all Christians have agreed on for 2,000 years. We believe in God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we believe in Jesus Virgin birth, death, and resurrection. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in forgiveness. We believe in resurrection. All all those kinds of things. There are a lot of doctrines that don't show up in those creeds. Because they're not of first importance. They're not essential for Christian faith. They're important, but they don't rise to that same level of importance as, for example, the death and resurrection of Jesus. So that was my first problem. I didn't think biblically or historically about the way Christian unity works or what doctrines are of most importance and that not all doctrines are of equal importance. The second problem I had was that I completely either ignored or misunderstood the context of those verses I was looking at in Romans 15, verses 5 and 6. Because I looked at those verses and thought, that must mean we all have to agree on a whole bunch of things, some of them controversial right, and and difficult for people to get on the same page about, We must all have to agree on those things in order for us to have real Christian unity and harmony. But if I had just read and understood chapter 14 and the first part of chapter 15, surely I could not have missed, you would think, I could not have missed the fact that what Paul has been saying so far is there are things you guys don't agree on. And that is okay. Don't try to compel each other to have all the same convictions. Don't judge and look down on those who have different convictions than you. Paul can't, now in chapter 15, be saying, oh, and by the way, if you want to be unified, though, you got to agree on everything. That doesn't make any sense. Right? If I had paid attention to the context... I would have known, or should have known, that when Paul was talking about their unity here, he could not have been talking about uniformity. He could not have been insisting that they had to agree on everything in order to be unified. Because he's just been saying, you don't agree on everything, and you need to be okay with that. So I I had completely misunderstood The way the Bible talks about Christian unity, the way Christians have historically thought about Christian unity, I completely misunderstood what Paul was saying in Romans chapter 15. And so uh, I want to do a better job of explaining this to you today than I did of thinking about it myself all those years ago. So let's look in Romans chapter 15 together at verses 4 through 7. And see what we can learn from Paul's words about Christian unity. So here we go, beginning in verse 4. He says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, in verse 4, before he gets to the the issue of unity, right in verse 4, he talks about the importance of the Old Testament scriptures. When he says, "Whatever was written in former days," right, he's talking about the Old Testament. Paul is currently writing, as he writes Romans, he's writing part of what will come to be known as the New Testament, right? So he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures, and he's explaining why, in verse 3, he quoted Psalm 69. As he was telling us that we need to imitate Christ's example. He says in verse 3, Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now, he could have just said, Christ did not please himself. After all, he laid down his life for us on the cross. He, he could have just said that, made the point effectively. Why did he go back and quote Psalm 69 and say, Psalm 69 tells us about what Christ did. And by learning from Psalm 69, what Christ was going to do, what Christ fulfilled in his life, we also learn what we ought to do as we imitate Christ. Why did he do that? Well, that's what he's explaining in verse 4. He says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. So his first point is, I quoted the Old Testament for you because the Old Testament is there to teach you. The New Testament is not the only place you can learn about Christ. The New Testament is not the only place we learn about what Christ did and therefore what we ought to do as imitators of Christ. We learn that from the Old Testament as well. Of course, you can learn it from the New Testament. Right? The Gospels are all about Jesus. The, the letters of the New Testament are explaining all kinds of things about Jesus. But if you ignore or neglect the Old Testament, you are cutting yourself off from one of the primary ways that God has given us to learn more about Christ. And by learning more about Christ, learning more about how we should live, what we should do, how we should conduct ourselves as imitators of Christ. So the first thing he says is, "Look, the Old Testament was given to you for your instruction. And he says this elsewhere too. In First Corinthians 10, he makes this point more than once as he quotes stories from the Old Testament about Israel and things that they did and um, things they didn't do well, right? And he says, now these things took place as examples for us. And then a few verses later, he says, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. It's not just the passages about Christ that are instructive for us from the Old Testament, but even reading the stories about Israel, reading about their idolatry, reading about their failures, reading about their sin, is a warning for us, They're examples for us to learn from so we don't follow in their footsteps. So Paul quotes the Old Testament and then explains, look, these verses, Psalm 69, the stories about Israel, these things are for you. They were written for you and for me, for us to learn from and be instructed by But not only to be instructed by, if you're tempted to say, well, I feel like I've got enough to be getting on with in the New Testament. right? I have a hard enough time just keeping up with all of that. Why do I need all the instruction from the Old Testament too? Well, you do, but let me give you another reason, or let Paul give you another reason why the Old Testament is important. He says not only whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. But then he says that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. In other words, the Old Testament is not only there to instruct, it is also there to encourage, to to strengthen us, to comfort us, to exhort us, to, to help us on our way. And I think part of the reason why Paul says this here is because what he is calling us to do is difficult. He's calling this church in Rome that is divided, and he's asking them and calling them to be united, to quit being judgmental about one another's convictions and practices and whatnot, and to just set all that stuff aside and love each other, and welcome each other, and be united, and and that's not easy. And he's saying the Old Testament told us that's how Christ was going to conduct himself, which means that's how we should conduct ourselves, and when we persevere in doing that, which is what he means by the word endurance, when we persevere in doing that, and receive the encouragement that comes from the scripture saying, you're doing the right thing. That's how you're supposed to do it. That's what Jesus did. That's the kind of stuff he endured. Those are the kind of sacrifices he made. You're on the right track. You're doing the right thing. There are promises for you. If you continue on that path, if you persevere in that and you receive the encouragement from the scriptures, Paul says those two things together are how God builds hope into our lives. When you know you're walking down the right path, and though it's difficult, the scripture is coming alongside you and saying, you're doing the right thing. Keep it up. Jesus endured this kind of thing too. He's with you. He will help you endure it. As as your endurance and encouragement come together, those two things equal Hope. They create hope. They build hope. That's what he means when he says that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Confidence about what God has promised He will give to us and do for us in the future. That's why we need the Scriptures, including the Old Testament here Paul is talking about, especially the Old Testament. That's what it's there for. Not only to instruct us, but to encourage us so that we will endure, so that we will have hope. So if you're neglecting the Old Testament, not only are you cutting yourself off from important instruction that God has given to you in His Word, you're also cutting yourself off from an important source of encouragement that will feed your hope. So don't neglect the Old Testament. It's there for your good. We could just simply say God has given you the Old Testament because he loves you. Because he wants what's best for you. And that's part of what the Old Testament is is there to give you. To help you with. Alright, so that's that's verse 4. Now, in verse 5 and 6... Paul now moves into this section on Christian unity. What does unity look like when we know we don't agree on everything? Is that is such a thing even possible? Is it possible to be unified when you don't agree on everything? Paul believes that it is. And if you stop to think about it, right, we know that it is in our lives, right? We know. Um, that's in our families don't agree on everything but we can still be united maybe people at work you know you don't agree with about everything but you're united about some things and that enables you to get your work done together I heard somebody talking on the radio this week about uh, even some of the best sports teams you know the really successful sports teams you might think Wow, those guys must never, you know, have any disagreements or fights or whatever. And this guy was saying, don't you believe it, right? There are plenty of, you know, arguments and whatever that even go on among teams that come together to achieve great things. So it, being unified around the things that are most important doesn't mean that we're going to agree about everything. doesn't have to mean that. It's not impossible to be unified when you know you have disagreements, So Paul, again, has been talking about the disagreements in this church all throughout chapter 14 and the first part of chapter 15. But now he says, May the God of endurance and encouragement, so when he was just talking about our endurance and encouragement, he's saying those things come from God. Your endurance ultimately comes from God. The encouragement you receive from the scriptures, those ultimately come from God. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you To live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, a couple things to notice here. One is that unity is a gift of God. He says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. Unity is ultimately a gift from God. It's not ultimately something we can pat ourselves on the back about and say, you know, good job us, isn't it great how unified we are, it's because we work so hard. No, it's ultimately a gift from God. It ultimately comes from God. For people to come together who have um, different convictions, different opinions, different backgrounds. If you look at um, other places like Galatians 4, Uh, I think it's Galatians 3, where Paul talks about how um, in Christ there is no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, right? That all those categories by which the world seeks to divide us and separate us and kind of put us in our separate tribes. Paul says in Christ, none of that stuff really matters. You don't stop being a Jew or Greek or male or female or slave or free just because you become a Christian, but those categories become less significant, When you become a Christian. Because what's more important is that you're all in Christ. You're a free person. That person's a slave, but you're both in Christ. So you have more in common. More significant things in common than you have that divide you. Jew and Greek. Massive division. Culturally. Ethnically. You know, practically. Paul says, come together in Christ. You have the most important things in common. Right, and so, that's the same kind of thing he's talking about here. Different context, but same idea. You have differences. Difference of opinions. Difference of conviction. But may God grant you to live in a harmony with one another. It is possible. He doesn't say it's easy, but he does say it's possible to live in harmony with one another. Uh, now, saying that it's a gift also doesn't mean we don't have to work at it a little bit. Because you can work against the gift. You can can try to throw out the gift. But the New Testament says we should work to preserve the gift. Ephesians 4, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. And notice this, Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We don't create that unity, but we have to work to maintain it. And part of how we work to maintain it is by bearing with one another, by being humble, by being gentle, by being patient. So, unity is... A gift from God, Paul says. When you have people from diverse backgrounds, when you have people with diverse convictions, which is what Paul is focusing on here, it takes God's grace, God's gift, for people to be unified. Now, what does he have in mind about the kind of unity we're supposed to have? Because people can be unified about all kinds of things. Some of them important, some of them... Not terribly important, right? What does he have in mind here? He says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, which has to do with thinking the same. in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he has in mind us thinking the same things and saying the same things. What kinds of things are we supposed to be thinking and saying the same? We know it's not everything. right? We've already talked about that. We know it's not everything. What things does Paul have in mind that we ought to be thinking the same thing about? Well, if we just look back through chapter fifteen or 14 and into chapter 15, we get a few ideas of what kinds of things Paul expects us to all agree upon. For example... We should think the same about what Christ did, even if we don't think the same about what Christ allows. So you might think, because Christ came and died and rose and we have the gospel now and Gentiles are included and all this stuff, that means we can eat all kinds of meat. Or you might think, no, that doesn't mean that. I've I've still got to go along with the... Old Testament law, right? If you're a Jew, especially in the first century, you're raised on that. Maybe you're not comfortable yet giving up some of those restrictions and requirements, right? We might not agree on that, but we do agree, right, that Christ came and lived and died and rose for us, right? When he says, um, uh, you know, that Christ did not please himself, in verse 3, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He's grounding his exhortation in a reminder about what Christ suffered for us. We're all supposed to be on the same page about that. If you say, whoa, whoa, whoa I, the Jesus I believe in didn't suffer anything. Okay, well then you're in a different camp. Right? We, we can't be unified. Not, not this way. Right, so we've got to think the same thing about what Christ did, even if we don't think the same thing about what Christ allows. We also need to think the same thing about what matters in the kingdom. Remember verse 17, that key verse in chapter 14, where he said the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you think that the kingdom of God is mainly a matter of eating and drinking, it is going to be hard to be unified in this church in Rome. Because not everybody agrees on that. And if you think that's the most important thing, you're not going to be unified. But if you agree with Paul that those are not the most important things, that what's more important is the gift of righteousness, right, by faith in Christ, that we're justified. If you think it's more important to have peace with God through Christ's death and resurrection, if you think it's more important to have the joy that comes from the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you, then you can be unified, even if you don't agree on the eating and drinking part. So we're supposed to think the same about what matters in the kingdom. We need to think the same about why we do what we do. Even if what we do matters, back in chapter 14, he said in verse 6, the one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. And then down in verse 7, none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. Right? In other words, he was saying, we all have the same goal, the same aim. People who eat and don't eat, meat give thanks to God. Right? People who observe certain days and don't, seek to honor God in what they're doing and not doing. We all have the same aim, even if we're going about it different ways. If we're not all seeking to glorify God, then again, we're not going to be unified. We're in different camps. But if we're all seeking to glorify God, even if we seek to do that in some different ways, we're still unified. And then finally, we can say that saying the same things, not just in our thinking, but in our Voicing in our our speaking, if we say the same things about who God is and what He has done for us, we are glorifying Him, right? Paul talks about not uh, destroying for the sake of food the brother for whom Christ died, or not uh, destroying the work of God, right? We all agree that God is the one who's at work to save us, and we give thanks to Him for what He has given us and what He has done for us, and how He has saved us through the gift of His son. And so if we can agree on those things, think the same about those things, speak the same about those things, that's where our real unity lies. Not by what we eat or don't eat, drink, don't drink, do, don't do, but on what we think about God and Christ and the gospel, the essentials of the faith. That's really what it all comes down to. And our aim In this unity is glorifying God, right? He says in verse 6, that together, you may with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, when we gather together to worship, to pray, to sing, to listen to the scriptures, and we praise God, God is not looking down on our worship and saying, yeah... That's not really up to snuff because you over here, you know, y'all do, y'all do this thing. And you over here, y'all, y'all do this a different way. And so, eh, you're trying, but that's not good enough. No. God looks on our worship... And if we are united in the essentials, if we are giving glory to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because we know that He sent His Son to die on the cross and rise from the dead, and we know that if we believe in Him, that we receive forgiveness of our sins, and we're counted righteous in Christ, we're forgiven, we're reconciled to God, and we're giving thanks to Him for that, that is pleasing to Him. Even if we don't agree on everything else. That glorifies Him even if we put that into practice in some different ways. Finally, he says in verse 7, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. We glorify God by not insisting that everyone agree on everything. There are people that get this wrong on both sides, right? There are people who think you don't have to agree on much of anything, right? Maybe not even doctrines like the deity of Christ, Jesus is God, or the Trinity, or whatever. You know, some people who think you don't have to agree on hardly anything. And some people who think you have to agree on almost everything, like I used to think. Both of those are wrong. God does not expect that of us and seeking to enforce that is not what glorifies God and here's the reason why that's not how God treated us when you first became a Christian was there a, was there a test of your doctrinal knowledge your, your Christian maturity your you know the level of your convictions that you had to pass in order to be a Christian. There were certain things you had to know, right? You have to know and understand the gospel in order to believe it, at least at a basic level, right? You don't have to pass a seminary exam about it, but you got to know that Jesus died and rose, and you believe that He's the Lord and Savior, and if you trust Him, you'll be saved, and you don't have to do any work. You know, basic things like that. You you got to know some stuff, right? But you don't have to know everything. And you don't have to be mature yet. And you don't have to have all your convictions lined out yet. That's not what God expected of you before he would welcome you into his family as one of his children. And so we should not expect that of other people before we will welcome them into fellowship with us. Because that's not how God treated us and that's not how God wants us to treat one another. When we instead welcome our brothers and sisters in Christ, people who believe in Christ, who believe the gospel, but may differ with us on other things, when we welcome people in those circumstances, that does glorify God. Because that's how God welcomed us. Because when we got saved, and in those early years of our Christian faith, there was a lot of things we didn't have ironed out yet. And there are even some things once you start maturing and growing, you think, you think you've think you got it ironed out now, and then another 10 or 20 years down the road, you go, well, <laughs> I still had more room to grow back then than I thought I did. right?" And we're always in process of making progress in our faith and maturity and our understanding of scripture and our, our convictions are changing and growing and all those things. So if we hold up a standard required for basic Christian fellowship that is different or higher than what God holds up for us, we've got a problem. That's not what God did for us. That's not what he wants us to do for others. So, Paul's not talking about everyone getting along just for the sake of getting along. He's talking about the parameters of real Christian unity, and drawing those boundaries in the appropriate places. You have to be a Christian to have unity with other Christians, but you don't have to agree on everything. And thank God for that, right? So let's pray and ask him to give us grace and wisdom to welcome one another as he has welcomed us.